my favorite analogy is to think about it like the weather, right? We are not going to be able to control the weather. So all the things that you're going to do to sort of minimize the impact of a weather event. How do you put in place your contingency plans? How do you, you know, think about what is your backup generator? What are your umbrellas? From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. I am so happy for my friend and colleague Zenobia to be with us today. Zenobia Godschalk is a communications executive with over 20 years of experience growing tech companies into multi-billion dollar global brands. She currently serves as SVP of comms for Hedera Hashgraph, a next-gen top 40 distributed ledger company. She joined as a founding team member in 2015, and today Hedera is valued at $10 billion. Hedera is governed by a council of global enterprises, including some of the world's largest technology and financial services firms. These firms, including Google, FIS, IBM, LG, Nomura, Shinhan Bank, Standard Bank, Tata Communications, and Wipro, these firms use distributed ledger technology for use cases, including supply chain micropayments, identity, and digital wallets. Super cool, interesting stuff. Zenobia is also the founder and chairwoman of Zag Communications, a leading PR and investor relations firm with extensive experience in crisis communications, particularly as it has to do with cybersecurity and breach response. Zenobia, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Caroline, thank you for having me on. You are such a treasure to this community and I'm just excited to be here. So cool. Let's start with your story. Tell us what your story is and about the different things that have happened in your career up until this point where you are just like coaching all of us on how to talk, what to talk about, what to say, and just really at the cutting edge of all the newest tech. How did you get to this point? Sure, sure. It is a, it's a little bit of a long and convoluted journey, but I suspect that that is the case for many people who work in the space, but also, you know, many people who are thinking about getting into this space. I am going to start it very, very early just to give some context because of what's happening in the world today. So I was 18 months old when we left Iran during that country's revolution. We are having a lot of discussions in our household today and over the past few weeks and months about what it means to be, you know, my, my children are reading books about refugees, about what it means to sort of leave your home, to start over, to do those kinds of things. And so, you know, my travels have taken me from Iran by way of England, where my family lived for a number of years, and then to California, right, the promised land for immigrants from all over the world. I grew up there. I went to school out at Stanford. And coming out of Stanford, I took a role uh, in finance. My, my background is in economics and industrial engineering. And I went to work for Intel. You know, the family was super excited, well-known brand, super stable, very reliable. And about six months into that job, I was bored out of my mind. Intel is an amazing company and has done such wonderful things. But they also have a program that basically at the time, you know, sort of kept you in this role. And if you were doing a great job, you got to rotate in 18 months. And I thought, okay, by 18 months, I'm going to have lost my mind. So I went from big company Intel, and I was super excited to tell my parents that I was going to a startup. And they were like, 
you're crazy. This company is making no money. They are not profitable. You know, my CFO dad was like, you're insane. And we've now, you know, supported you through college and you're probably going to have to move back home. That was not the case. I went to work for a startup called Beyond.com in the finance group, but supporting their marketing function. And that was where I really got some great exposure to what PR and marketing did. And then from there, I was recruited to a company that at the time was called Loud Cloud, which was Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz company. And continued with them, started off as, you know, sort of low man on the totem pole and grew to run their entire PR efforts for what would become Opsware before we sold it to HP. So a lot of trial by fire in that space, a lot of, you know, that was really kind of core internet infrastructure, early days of cloud computing, trying to tell people, trust us, you're going to do a bunch of stuff in the cloud, kind of before it was known as the cloud. Then my, at the time, boyfriend, now husband, had moved out to Atlanta. Uh, When we got engaged, we thought probably a good idea to live in the same city. And so I moved out here and was looking at, I was looking at, you know, are there software companies I can join? Are there companies where I can sort of do the same thing for a different company? And at the time in Atlanta, the answer was really no. There were a few software companies, but none that were sort of at scale where they needed someone to run their communications efforts. And so I was talking to a connection who was in the investment banking space, and he needed someone to be an analyst on his team covering internet security and infrastructure on the sell side. And the sell side is the people who write the reports that, you know, highlight, hey, is this company's stock a good investment, right? Is at the time, is Symantec a good investment? Is McAfee a good investment? Is ISS a good investment? And why? And so that was really my, you know, I I jumped in there and that was sort of, hey, you've got to learn about now the entire internet security industry very, very quickly. And I remember taking the role and I remember talking to Mark Andreessen and saying, is this crazy? Like, if I really like PR and marketing, should I go do this? And he said, of course you should, because Very few people who are in PR and marketing have that financial analyst perspective and have that perspective of what the investors want and how they think. So even if you hate it, you will come out of that having so much more of a robust background for, you know, for going back to PR. And that is exactly what happened. I I did a stint on the sell side for about two years. Very quickly, I remembered why I didn't go into investment banking right out of the gate. (laughs) That is a very, you know, it's just a, um, it's a grind. There's, you know, there's, you're on all of the time. And you also, for me personally, I felt like, well, gosh, I'm giving people investment advice and I'm doing all of this analysis, but I'm not building anything. And I missed that. I missed being part of a team that was helping to build and grow things. So I started Zag Communications really just as a consulting business. I reached out to some of my contacts on the West Coast. I said, I'm thinking about consulting, you know, in PR and IR, investor relations. What do you think? The, my first two calls, they said, great, like sign us up. And, you know, I would love to say I had this big strategic plan for growing, you know, a, a, a big competitive agency, but it was very much organic. And I think as I started to think about how do I want my life to look, how do I want to design my life? You know, I want to have children. I want to have a family. What kind of agency do I want to put together? And so Zag was started and still has sort of this core belief that 
there are a ton of smart people, in particular women, who go into these jobs. You know, PR can be a brutal job. I think it has, you know, it's been ranked as similar to InfoSec. It's been ranked as one of the most stressful jobs in America, you know, for the every year that they do those rankings. And part of that is because agencies stretch people too thin. So you end up, you know, being assigned to a huge number of clients and working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. And then you see a big group of those people then start to have families and just completely drop out. So we designed Zag so that it would purposely be different. So not overtaxing people, hiring a senior level team who knows how to do all of the things, right? The communications with the client, the relationships with the media, the analyst strategy, the messaging, all of those things that are super important to our end clients and where they say, okay, that's the value you're going to bring. And we can say, we're going to make a, you know, a, a good living doing this for a controlled set of clients. We're not going to do growth at any cost. We're going to maintain those relationships. So we've had clients who have been with us since Zag started in 2007. And I think that's pretty rare among PR agencies. And then in 2015, we started working with a set of entrepreneurs, Dr. Lehman Baird and Nance Harmon, who were working on distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology as the category is more broadly known. And at the time, it felt like, gosh, this is something special. These two are a remarkable duo of founders. Over the years, I had been asked to join some of our clients, you know, to go in-house, and I'd always said no. And this just felt like, gosh, this is so new and so different, and it feels like, you know, the web at its beginning, and it feels like cloud computing at its beginning, and so maybe I should give this a try. And so we launched Hedera, which is a public ledger, publicly in 2018. We launched it globally in 2019 across APAC and EMEA, and then we all know what happened in 2020. But, you know, the interesting thing that happened during that time was a lot of use cases that we would not have imagined for distributed ledger technology started bubbling up. So areas where you need computational trust between parties that may not wholly trust one another or may need to share only certain parts of their data, but not everything that they have are great use cases for blockchain and distributed ledger technology. For example, all of the different providers in a vaccine cold, cold chain storage, right? Getting your vaccine from the manufacturer through the distributor all the way into, you know, for shots in arms, there needs to be accountability of that to make sure that the vaccine is stored at the right temperature all the way along the way. Being able to have each of those parties contribute that data, being able to have everybody have full visibility and access into that, but not relying on a single party to manage that data, I think is, is a great example of something you know we wouldn't have expected, but has been an area where, where distributed ledger technology has really started to shine. And so that's where, that's where we are today. Yes. So I, I wear a few hats, but all of them keep me on my toes. And, you know, I think in our world, you, you know, you're almost forced to stay on the cutting edge of these technologies and you have to certainly take some of them with a grain of salt. But, you know, when the wave starts, you sort of start to know, okay, this is happening. And, and I be, either 
I'm either going to hop on or my children are going to have to educate me on these technologies soon. <laughs> Zenobia, what an extraordinary journey you've been on. And thank you so much for your generosity in sharing it with us. I wonder, you know, your career and your life has taken so many different twists and turns. If you could go back and speak with a younger version of yourself, I wonder what you would say to her. Yes. Well, so many things, you know, outside of buy Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I would say it is okay to have a very, you know, pun intended zigzag path. I think there are certainly those among us. And, you know, I knew people in college who were absolutely, I'm going to medical school. I want to be this kind of a doctor. I have my whole life planned out for me. And, you know, I think also, also as an immigrant, it was the, well, you're going to be an engineer or a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor. So, you know, sort of pick from one of those and, and those are, are your, your pathways to success. I think what we're seeing is that change is accelerating faster than we expect. It's certainly accelerating faster than previous generations have, have expected, and it's going to just continue happening. So, you know, the the 80% of the jobs that will be available to our children are not jobs that even exist today. So I think keeping in mind, you know, the, the, the teams that you work with, the people that you're going to learn from, and, you know, the potential of the industry are all things to consider when you, when you choose your job. And also just knowing it's okay to not know. It's not okay to not know what the end result is going to be. As long as you are excited about it, you feel like you can be passionate about it. You feel like it's something where you can really contribute and kind of dig in. You know, it's okay to not know what that what that is going to look like, because I think the ability to change and the ability to be flexible is going to continue to be more and more important as the world changes. I think that's definitely been demonstrated over this past couple of years. I think as we look at our friends and our colleagues and different companies and seeing who has the ability to be successful when things change and why. I love that message. Thank you so much. Zenobia, you have done a TED Talk about demystifying blockchain and internet privacy. I wonder, what do you think our listeners need to know about blockchain and about the internet? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think, you know, your listeners probably already know the, the mantra of assume that everything that's out there is public, right? And it's the same thing I tell my kids that assume nothing is private. You know, we we had an Alexa device for a hot minute before we returned it, both because my kids kept saying, Alexa, set a timer for four minutes. And also because it became very clear when you started asking Alexa questions about what she was doing with your data, that she was not going to give you any answers. So I think, you know, there's, there's that point of view, but there's also, I think blockchain and DLT gives us an opportunity to, you know, another, another Mark Andreessenism, let's make different mistakes this time, right? We made so many mistakes with the internet because we worked from the assumption that people were going to use it for good and for productivity. And we, you know, we were probably a bit too idealistic. So coming at 
kind of the next version of whatever the internet will be and whatever those applications will be, we have the opportunity to build them with privacy in mind. And we have the opportunity to build them with more robust controls in mind and much more granular controls in mind. Now, we as individuals will have to take advantage of that. We'll have to choose what data we give certain people access to. And, you know, when we grant those permissions, do we actually pay attention to, should we revoke those permissions? So there will be more onus on the individual to actually make those decisions actively. But I think also there will be more ability to do so. And then, you know, there's also sort of this idea of in the metaverse and in these virtual worlds, you know, identity is going to mean something very different. I think I can be, you know, I can be Zenobia Godschalk to this audience, but, you know, maybe if I am pitching to an audience of VCs that I know is say 80% male, maybe I don't want to have this persona, right? Or maybe when I engage with different communities, I want to have different personas. So I think the idea of identity is also going to change and, you know, giving people enough to sort of recognize who you are and be able to validate who you are without giving them everything of who you are. To me, that's a really interesting and exciting, also, but also tricky concept. So I think all of these technologies, you know, we just have to go into it with the mindset of we may have to take it to the extreme in terms of what's the worst that people can do with it. And then build backwards from there to make sure we don't make, at least don't make the same mistakes and hopefully don't make worse ones. I really like that idea about, hey, let's try not to make the same mistakes. Let's try to make new mistakes. And the recognition that making mistakes is part of learning. Zenobio, I think the information security industry, it's super interesting for me to have observed how people communicate about information security over the 15 years or so that I've been in the industry. And I think that we also live in a super interesting time where there is all this information and it's like, what do people hear? What do people believe? And so it comes down to this topic of myth versus reality. And I wonder if from your perspective, being a communications expert and having seen communications from all these different perspectives, if there are any observations that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, one of my old CTOs said, well, we're always going to have issues as long as there's a carbon life form at the other end of anything, right? And I think you know, it, when you look from the outside, it can be very black and white, right? Well, of course, in hindsight, you should have done this. Of course, in hindsight, you should have patched that or you should have, you know, done things this way. And I think the, the InfoSec community has over time evolved to recognize that that's, that's not true, right? There are more areas of sort of shades of gray and, you know, to think about things. uh, My favorite analogy is to think about it like the weather, right? We are not going to be able to control the weather. So how do you put in place your contingency plans? How do you, you know, think about what is your backup generator? What are your umbrellas? What are all the things that you're going to do to sort of minimize the impact of a weather event? I think that shift in mentality has been happening. And I think, you know, you're starting to see, I mean, you've already seen it. You've seen people sort of accept that and say, okay, 
we are not going to expect our security teams to be perfect. You know, we want them to be prepared and we want them to make us prepared, but, you know, we're, we're not going to be perfect. And I think, you know, the other interesting thing that we're seeing is sort of more opening up and sharing of the postmortems. And I think for a long time, that was something that was just taboo. People didn't want to share what happened. They wanted to, you know, they felt like that would be a big liability. But now with, you know, for better or for worse, with things like Twitter, you've started to see more of that exposed. And I think that that actually is very, very helpful for the community because first of all, it says, hey, nobody's perfect. And second of all, there are a lot of lessons that can be learned and can be shared that you just can't share if you're trying to hide certain parts of that. So, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to me sort of watching, you know, my kids and that generation be much more open. I think some of that is filtering up into sort of how corporate America communicates and how consumers expect corporate America to communicate. So that's actually helpful for those of us in InfoSec because that's no longer, you know, it's no longer forbidden or taboo. Awesome. Zenobia, last question for you. What have you been reading lately that you've enjoyed, you know, business-wise or otherwise? Yes. So I read a fabulous book and the, the title made me chuckle. So on the personal side, I will read, I'll read just about anything. And I'll try just about anything. Taylor Jenkins read, like all her stuff is just escapism and super fun, but sort of a combo business inspirational book I read recently was called Broad Band. Um, and the subtitle is The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet. And I loved that tongue-in-cheek title and you know, I feel like every time I go read one of these books, it is a discovery of, oh, wait a minute, we know these names, we know all of these male names who have done amazing things and have, you know, have developed these technologies. But there are just as many, if not more, women who have been pretty content to let their let their accomplishments speak for themselves. And I think only now are getting recognized for those. So I really enjoyed that book. I would highly recommend it to, you know, to anyone who loves sort of that historical, you know, take on what's happened in the world, but also a little bit of their personal stories. Fantastic. I am like literally, okay, so first of all, broadband sounds awesome. And I am Googling Taylor Reed because, and I shared this with you before we started recording, I am going to be on an airplane tomorrow for the first time since March 2020, and I need a really good audiobook. And so now I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Yes, she's got some great ones. And then the other one, I'm blanking on the author's name, but the henna artist. Mm, cool. And then she wrote she wrote a sequel to that. And those both take place in Jaipur and they have just beautiful imagery and storytelling. And I loved those as well. Phenomenal. Alka Joshi. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. Zenobia, what a pleasure this has been. I appreciate so much you taking the time to spend it with me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It is always lovely to talk to you. And thank you so much for everything that you do for the InfoSec community. I don't know that all your listeners know all of the things that you do and how tirelessly you contribute your time and your efforts behind the scenes. So kudos to you and thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter, 
at Humans of InfoSec.